This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. And the blind beggar knows righteousness to claim for his own, only to plead, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And the kingdom of God came to the blind man and Zacchaeus that day. Both of them came to Jesus like a child. No righteousness of their own to boast. The only plea was to come under the mercy and authority of God. Do you notice that both incidents, the blind beggar and the Zacchaeus story, happened in Jericho? And what happened in Jericho 1,500 years before that? Rahab. Rahab. When, when uh, Joshua came into the land, they sent the two spies. Rahab was the only family saved. Why was she saved? You have the scripture, Joshua chapter 2, verse 8 to 12. I'll just read it quickly, just for you to get a sense of what she said and where she put her trust. So before the band laid down, verse 8, Joshua chapter 2, verse 8, she came up to them on the roof and said to the man, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of Amorite. Remember, drying up the, sand, the, 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 the Red Sea of Egypt was 40 years ago, probably before she was born, right? But she knew. And verse 11, As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, that you are right at our doorstep, no more spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and the earth below. So please deal with us mercifully. Now, it was not the might of Israel army that Rahab feared, right? It was the God of the people of Israel that Rahab said, this is the true God who led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, defeated the kings of the Amorites. And this is the God that I choose to come under, to choose to come under the covering and the mercy and the authority of this almighty God. And as you read Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, Rahab went on to become the mother-in-law of Ruth. Mother-in-law of Ruth. And you know Ruth? Yeah? Out of Ruth came, the descendants of Ruth became King David, and then Jesus. What happened 1,500 years ago in Jericho? A woman came under the mercy and authority of the God of Israel, and they were saved. So let me come back to this hamburger again. <laughs> you have the top of, above the patty, 
you have two stories with a bacon in between. That two stories are negative illustration of people who did not enter the kingdom of God because they relied on their own righteousness and despised other people. But on the bottom of the patty, two stories of people who entered the kingdom of God not relying on their righteousness, no righteousness of their own to claim, but to cry out, Son of David, have mercy upon me. So overjoyed that Jesus showed favour to Zacchaeus that day. So, A, a prime, one pair, B, B prime, another pair. What is the centre of the message? What is the centre of the message? Luke chapter 18, verse 31 to 34. That is the, the core, the patty. Let's look at it. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they killed him, and the third day he will rise again. But they, un- they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So Jesus was the Son of Man that the prophets has prophesied about in the Old Testament. He would be betrayed, tortured, killed, and the third day rose again. This was the Son of Man who, like the sons of Israel, tortured by Pharaoh, passed through the Red Sea, will come up alive on the other side. This was the beef patty. Jesus, the Son of Man, foretold by the prophet who will die and rise again. Now, can this patty stand alone? I mean, you can. You can read this section of Scripture alone, right? But you want a hamburger, it's for something, right? So you have to hem in the other stories. So, So what if Jesus come tortured, die again? If you read that just by yourself, so what? What is that to me? What is that to the people of the world? That's where the other stories come in. Men and women shall enter the kingdom of God by how we respond to this Son of Man who will die, who will be buried, and who will rise again. Just as Rahab put her trust in the God of Israel, who led the people of Israel through the death of the Red Sea, rose again on the other side. So also, Zacchaeus and the blind man put their trust in the Son of Man, who will be tortured, died, and rose again, to whom they cry, Son of David, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Like a child, trusting in the crucified, resurrected son of David. Not like the Pharisee or the rich young ruler who rely on their self-righteousness.
those who receive Jesus like a child, like Zacchaeus and the blind beggar, shall be filled with joy. Notice both the blind man and Zacchaeus. They went out with joy, overjoyed. But what happened to the Pharisees and the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler went away sad. The Pharisee went away indignant. So unlike little children who were so happy to be around Jesus. To the Pharisee, Jesus was a questionable figure. They thought he was a fraud. To the rich young ruler, Jesus' teaching was questionable. He thought the demand was unreasonable. And to the twelve disciples, the prophecy was questionable. They could not understand Jesus' plans in Jerusalem. Is Jesus also questionable to you? How is he questionable to you? Now, none of these men with eyes saw Jesus the Nazareth as the Savior, correct? Rich young ruler who could see, didn't see. Pharisee who has eyes to know the scripture, didn't see. But who saw? Who saw? It was a blind beggar. When the crowd was crowding around, he heard some noise. He asked, what is going on? What did the crowd answer? Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And then he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Do you notice something? The crowd say, Jesus of Nazareth, but he didn't cry out, Jesus of Nazareth. What did he cry out? Son of David, where is Nazareth? Nazareth is up north, very near Galilee west of Galilee, in a place allotted to the tribe of Zebulun. Son of David, tribe of Judah from the south, not the north. How did this blind man know? How did this blind man relate that Jesus the, this of Nazareth, the son of this carpenter, that people saw him grew up in the country, how did this blind man knew that this is the son of David who's going to be the saviour? Obviously, this blind man wasn't blind. He was listening. He has heard the scripture in order to know this. Nobody told him. He was also looking forward to the son of David to be revealed. Otherwise, he wouldn't call out that way. So it's irony. The irony is the blind man saw and those with eyes didn't see. So, this poor blind man encountered Jesus and he was changed from sadness to joy. He was blind and then he saw. Despised all his life, now vindicated. It's not his sin or his parents' sin, that he was blind. In contrast, the ruler, the rich, perfect eyesight, encountered Jesus, remained unchanged. 
but his riches wasn't the obstacle. Because Zacchaeus was a very rich man. He was very rich, super rich. But the very rich Zacchaeus encountered Jesus and he was changed, unlike the rich young ruler. Both wealthy, but Zacchaeus did not love his wealth the way the rich young ruler loved his wealth. Zacchaeus on his own, without Jesus' instruction, declared publicly immediately, half my wealth, I will give it to the poor today. Today. And then, that's not the end. He said, if anybody, uh, uh, I have defrauded anybody, I will repay fourfold according to the law of Moses. So on the single day of encountering Jesus, he has given away more than half his possession. And he was so happy doing it. I think we can do it a lot of happy people tonight. Yeah? Give away half your wealth. <laughs> but we need to encounter Jesus. And that thing come naturally. It's really my privilege to visit you for the first time in the Ascension. Um, I was taken to visit your ESL program. I was uh, given uh, a booklet on your capital, uh, we call that capital mission, cap huh? campaign, capital campaign, and the beautiful uh, premises you're going to have one day. Do you know that is not for you? That is for God, for people who hasn't come in yet. When I look at the amount of people coming to study ESL from 22 nations, and you have 38 volunteers, it's amazing. And this program is only two, three years old. How do you manage to have that kind of mobilization? God is stirring something. That's why you are responding. Do you know you have the potential to be a global church from where you are? Your teaching ESL is not just to add numbers to your church. Your teaching ESL is a potential of seeing church planters all over the world because they've spent a few years in this church, encountered Jesus, disciple, fired up by the gospel and spread it wherever they go. That is the possibility. And that is possible because we have in some way encountered the gospel. Now, the church in Singapore, 50 years ago, the Anglican church, we were just another regular Anglican church, very happy with our liturgy, quite malnourished. In the bishop's diary in those days, he wrote he was so tired as a bishop. And every time, he, he was the first Asian bishop, Bishop Chuban. In his diary, he said every time he go to United Kingdom, to Britain, he felt like a beggar. Because we have no money to pay our own clergy, we still need, needed help from England. And in his tiredness and not knowing what to do, 
God did something in the small island of Singapore. Back in 1972, a group of young schoolboys in a Methodist school prayed during their lunchtime. They gave up their lunchtime. They gathered in the clock tower of the school to pray. And they fast and they pray. Months had passed, and then one day the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Now that got depressed. It came out the first page of the newspaper. Now this are uh, before before Facebook and so on. Okay, first page of newspaper is big news. And a few days later, the leaders of the four denomination, the Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, and Anglican, including our bishop, came out with public statement to say that um, these young people are influenced by some cult, they are experiencing some hysteria, and like uh, people on drugs, you know. It was so negative. Now, God has a last laugh. That was September 72, when, when they made the public statement. November 72, Bishop Chubani was in Bangkok, for a World Council of Churches meeting, and somebody passed him a book, Dennis Bennett, 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> he was an Anglican uh, Episcopal priest from UK, from US. He encountered the Holy Spirit and he wrote that book, 9 o'clock in the morning. So Bishop read the book, and then he, when he finished it, he said, God, if whatever he say is real, I want it because I'm so tired. And uh, like all good Anglican, after you pray, you go to sleep. <laughs> he slept. He woke up a different man. In between the time he closed his eyes and he opened his eyes, the Holy Spirit visited him. He was a different man. He came back, our cathedral became the place where revival meetings were held, healing meetings were held, and he himself received the gift of healing. You know what is that? Praying for people's legs to be lengthened. I saw it before my eyes, yeah, how he lengthened by prayer. So a lot of people have backache, and often it's because uneven length of our leg. He, he will pray and see the leg getting equal after praying. That, he said, I don't know why God gave me such a humbling gift. But what happened to him affected the Anglican church. The Anglican church got revived. It spread on to the Methodist church and the other churches. And there was that sense of uh, Jesus being real in our midst. And that paved the way for the first Billy Graham crusade in 1978. Over the five nights, 310,000 people came through the stadium. 19,600 people gave their life to Jesus. That represents 1% of our population. Imagine five-day campaign, there's a 1% shift. That was a real impact in the land. And it is the work of the Spirit. We have nothing to boast of ourselves because if God didn't visit us, we would probably be another very good prayer book Christian, Anglican, and still relying on UK for money. But when the Holy Spirit touches, when Jesus is real to us, 
everything change. People tithe. They give more than their tithe. Churches begin to grow. We planted more churches. Most of us are first-generation Christian. That Jesus is real to us. So mission became very natural to us. It wasn't a strategy on anything. You, may, you can have plans and strategy. The bishop can make big plans. But if the, speak, the people hasn't encountered the living Christ by the Spirit, there's no obedience. There won't be a take-up because Jesus isn't real. But when Jesus is real, like Zacchaeus, he stood up without Jesus having to tell him. He gave away more than half his possession. Those are kingdom work, my friends. Those are not fundraising campaigns. Now, as I conclude, let me draw three applications for us to consider. Firstly, riches or poverty is no hindrance to the kingdom. Riches or poverty is no hindrance to the kingdom. What is a hindrance? It's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is the hindrance to the kingdom. Let missionary hear this. Let missionary church hear this. Riches or poverty is no hindrance to the kingdom. Self-righteousness is. So be careful with our attitude of missions to poorer society. While we have compassion on the poor, our attitude, our method, our message should neither make them look up to our wealth nor look down on their own poverty because those were not the hindrance. The hindrance is when we trust ourselves, our own effort to be righteous. Poverty is not the problem. Riches may not be the problem. It could be, but may not be. But self-righteousness could, could infect both the, the, the rich and the poor. At the same time, So that's why I always encourage our missionary, please avoid saying, in Singapore we do this, in Singapore we do that. Because unconsciously, we are preaching a gospel of superiority, of wealth, of prosperity. We must live humbly among the people as repented sinners, covered under His mercy like a child that we too are sinners saved by grace, not our riches, not our better education system that save us. It is God's mercy that we chose to come under. Okay? Riches or poverty, not the hindrance, but self-righteousness is. Second application, self-righteousness and wealth are master deceivers. Okay, self-righteousness and wealth are master deceivers because it gives us a false sense of superiority. Like the parable of the Pharisee, standing by himself, the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, the extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes, tithes, and of all that I get. 
Notice he stand by himself praying, meaning that this was a private prayer, his private attitude, that I have less need of repentance, less need for deep reflection. All external signs are looking up for me. People pay me respect. I have money. I'm not sure you have the same problem here. When the stock market go, is doing well, the church attendance go down. <laughs> yeah. So when things are looking up, we, we become careless, presumptuous, that God's favour is upon me. I can do whatever I like because God is with me. It's very, very deceptive. In a society that we minister in in Thailand, karma is very deep in the psyche. Wealth and well-being is attributed to good karma in my previous life. Conversely, the poor and the suffering is attributed to bad karma. They have, must have done something terrible in the last life or they haven't made enough merit in the last life and they have to just accept the poorer lot in life as fate. They can do nothing much to change that except to accumulate more merits in hope of a better reincarnation. Are you familiar with that? Yeah? So the whole concept reinforces and perpetuates the social stratification of society. Actually, the poor are very well set up for the gospel of salvation. And the harder work of the gospel is actually on those who are self-assured. They have needs, but they think they are better than their fellow man. And in Chiang Mai, these are the unrich people's group, often the middle and upper income. And they need the gospel. We know they need the gospel, but you need to get through the smoke. And that's why we do the very difficult thing. Have a bilingual kindergarten, a lot of effort, but we provide good quality education. And the way our teachers love the children makes such a big difference to, to the family. They can see the changes in the children and they, they have their faith, put their trust in our school. You know, we, we are uh, a kindergarten at a great disadvantage. We could only do preschool, kindergarten one, two and three, four levels. We have no energy to do grade one and above. And all these parents keep asking us to, please do grade one, grade one. Jeannie <laughs> just told me, there's a parent who say they intend to have four children and all four will come to us. Can you please have grade one and above? That shows the kind of faith they have in the good education and the love that our teachers gave to them. And that's how we want to open a platform, a door into this family's life who seems to be okay in the external, but deep inside, we are all sinners in needs of the grace of God. The rich need to be delivered just as the poor need to be delivered from our self-righteousness. Having said that, we do not neglect the poor around our church. We have other ways to reach the poor around our family because everybody needs the gospel, but the door may be different. 
So that's the second thing. Self-righteousness can be very deceptive. We have to check our own heart that when we are doing well, we do not look down on somebody else who are not doing well. We too are sinners saved by grace. And lastly, the gospel of Christ crucified is still the gospel. It hasn't changed. The gospel of Christ crucified is the gospel. That is the beef patty we talk about all day that we respond to. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, a folly to the Gentiles. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, has Jesus risen from, has Jesus risen from the dead? Yes. Then why did he still preach Christ crucified? and not Christ, the victorious, risen Lord. Do you understand what I mean? And when we read Luke chapter 18, the petty 31 to 34, Jesus foretelling His suffering, death, death and resurrection, we have the tendency to see that as the old dispensation. Yeah, that uh, the listener uh, uh, before Jesus was crucified, old now we are in the new dispensation, we should preach the triumphant resurrection of Christ. But Paul preached Christ crucified. It was not that Paul did not believe in the resurrection, but Paul saw the power of the gospel in Jesus walking the way of the cross. Our tendency is to identify the power of God only in the resurrection, only in victory. But when we read Paul carefully, hear Jesus carefully, discipleship is about taking up the cross and follow Him. And for Paul, I decided to know nothing else except Jesus and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. My speech and my message were not a plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. So we all like the idea of the power of the resurrection, which is true, but we are less excited about the power to carry the cross. We like the idea of Christendom more than the persecuted church. And we feel that the measure of Christian gospel advance is when Christian is the majority in a particular country. But deep inside, actually, we are thirsting for worldly power rather than true spiritual power. Christians are minority in Thailand, only 1% of the population. Anglican Church in Thailand, we are very small. After 25 years, no, 28 years now, we are only 850 worshippers in total. Now, is our power to transform society questionable because of our questionable size? 
Does that mean the gospel is less powerful in Thailand today than if Christians become 20% of the population one day? The power of the gospel doesn't belong, depends on our size. doesn't depend on our victorious shout. It really depends on how we learn to experience the power of the cross. And I'm afraid that Christian with worldly power and wealth, we are highly susceptible to the wrong gospel. Very likely a corrupted gospel. Now, it doesn't mean that Christian minority is immune, immune to the lure of power because minority, sometimes you also want to tap on worldly authority to be friend with them to say, now I'm friend with this worldly power, I can be powerful, I can be more stable. It's the same kind of temptation. The wrong gospel. The same way Israel tried to seek alliance with Assyria and Egypt when they were powerless. Brothers and sisters, we need to cut through the smoke, smoke, smoke screen of wealth, worldly success, worldly power. If we want to preach the true gospel, we, know, we, we must know where to rely on our true spiritual power. It is Christ crucified that Paul preached. It is the carrying of the cross that Jesus spoke about. Now, which character in today's message resemble us today? Zacchaeus, the one hated by people. The blind man, the one despised by people. Or the rich young ruler, a good, successful young man, well-regarded with a future in front of him. Or the Pharisee, revered in society as holy man, teachers of others, whose opinion other people come to seek. Now, whichever character we identify ourselves with, the kingdom of God belongs to one who comes to God like a child. Trusting not in our righteousness, in our worldly success, but really like a child, trusting in the mercy and authority of God the Father over us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And may that be the power to drive our mission, drive our purpose in life as individual, as a church. Our life in His hand is amazing because He knows how to make us fruitful more than we can do ourselves. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, tonight our hearts are drawn to You. And when we look at Your mercy, Your love, and Your might, we are really human. From dust we came, from dust we return. And if not for you who have put your treasure in us, this earthen vessel, we are just ordinary vessel. But thanks be to God. Lord, you are so merciful. You filled us with your spirit and connected us to the living Jesus, the Christ now lives in us. 
Lord, tonight we dedicate ourselves to you as living sacrifice and for your life to shine out again, for your life to uh, flow out of us to those around us. Transform us, O Lord, as we open our hearts to you. Thank you, Jesus. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.